0: Hello and welcome to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast at the University of Dundee. My name is Paul Feeney and today I'm joined by Claire Binning of Strathclyde University to discuss the historical roots of our perceptions on masculinity and the rise of involuntary celibacy or incel culture among males in our contemporary era. Claire is currently studying a master's in English at Strathclyde, focusing primarily upon gender studies and the relationship between inceldom and Western literature using modern texts such as Frankenstein, Hamlet and The Catcher in the Rye. She's also presented her research on incel culture within the wider history of gender relations at the Postgraduate Gender Research Network of Scotland. As a disclaimer, this conversation covers sensitive topics such as mental health, as well as the use of misogynistic language, which some listeners may find distressing. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Claire, thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, eh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Before we get into uh, your research more specifically, this is obviously a topic that hasn't been covered much in uh, contemporary academia. So can you just kind of lay out some key terms for us, beginning with, I suppose, what is an incel and how do they fit in within kind of broader themes of gender studies and masculinity, etc.?
1: Kind of depending on who you ask and where you go, there are uh, a couple of kind of varying definitions of incel. The kind of earliest research into inceldom and involuntary celibacy started um, around about the 90s along with the onset of, you know, internet um, culture. Definitions from that period by people like Denise Donnelly kind of go towards a more etymological description of incels as literally Involuntary celibate people. So a person who desires a sexual relationship, but maybe can't achieve one due to perceived unattractiveness, social anxiety, and what they call um, love shyness. But um, more recently, the kind of combination of third wave feminism and the growing accessibility of fringe forum sites like Reddit and 4chan uh, across the kind of past 10, 20 years has seen and seldom become a much more um, toxic community associated with violent misogyny, um, ableism, racism and white supremacy and it has developed these strong links to online alt-right and anti-feminist movements in this collective which has become known as the Manosphere, a big kind of group of all these different anti-feminist and men's rights activist groups.
0: Thanks. So you mentioned it's kind of rise throughout the 90s um, towards today, congruent with internet culture and feminism and stuff like that. Can you speak a bit more about what the main causes of inseldom are and why its rise has been ex- so exponential over the past decade or so?
1: I think it is important to try and not establish kind of a clear causality because I don't really believe so much that there exists one in the sense of a cause that can be traced quite clearly but rather I would kind of argue that it's more of um, a gradual process, um, something like online extremist radicalisation, online grooming and things like that and it's something that has kind of come about particularly with the internet which has kind of facilitated the sharing of ideas, um, you know, across borders that wasn't there in the early days of the movement where it was more of like a, like an online kind of um, support forum and like a community where people would be able to go to one another with, you know, various problems. But from the kind of onset of third wave feminism and stuff like that, it has become something that is not a, an inclusive community anymore. It has become very exclusive and it has become incredibly radical and its kind of relationship with these other groups of online alt-right communities. Um, I think that technology is really what's facilitated that, perhaps, rather than caused it.
0: You mentioned the negative consequences of insuldom uh, in contemporary society, especially among ideas like radicalisation. Um, what I'm kind of most interest, interested in from the outset is how this radicalization process occurs, like how... The internet goes from a sharing of ideas and uh, a means to express ideas in a kind of fair, democratic process, towards a tool for radicalization. How does the radicalization process occur for for the individual?
1: A good way of thinking about it in terms of maybe an analogy that works quite well is you know the the popular um, saying that you're never more than six feet away from a rat um, in any city. Um, I think it's quite. Evident in anyone who has ever used YouTube or Reddit or Twitter or anything is quite aware of the fact that you're never really more than a couple of clicks away from quite extremist and bigoted material online and in some cases quite incredibly traumatic material online. And I think that the the kind of growth of these internet sites like Reddit and 4chan, where the kind of purpose of the site is to facilitate this you know, shock value and troll culture, which, you know, doesn't really have much in the way of consequences for the users who post and share this kind of stuff and interact with this kind of stuff. I think that in that sense it's kind of become something I'm um, not necessarily that, that these attitudes didn't exist before the internet because they definitely did, but I think that it's the ability to share information so instantly and also anonymously, is incredibly important. Of course, young children especially will typically absorb and repeat information that they hear almost instantly. And I think I'd argue that particularly, um, you know, Gen Z kids, I think they're just as likely to repeat slurs and attitudes and behaviours that they might hear on, you know, South Park for our generation, maybe, and TikTok for younger kids today. Um, as they are from their parents or peers on the playground so i think it's about an amalgamation of of um, different cultural artifacts and the ways in which these artifacts when they're not looked at critically can kind of develop this role in facilitating ideas that perhaps they weren't intended to in the first place or in exposing particularly young children to ideas that you know aren't Aren't meant for young children to view because they can't look at things critically.
0: Hmm. That's that's fascinating. I think, especially when you look at the cultural uh, artifacts that exist within society, there seems, especially among the youth, there seems to be a, a a blending of sincerity and, I suppose, what you would term as meme culture in online forums uh, like Reddit and 4chan, and that that seems to create a breeding ground for. Uh, incel culture to arise. To what extent do you think uh, representation of inceldom through kind of extreme joke examples, uh, mm. using the same sort of tropes that something like South Park or something like that would do, uh, How? what do you think the kind of real world implications of this blending between um, really offensive harmful material and kind of what's perceived as a joke or a meme online what do you think are the kind of real world implications of of that kind of thing
1: so i think that in terms of the way that um, these kind of cultural artifacts um, relate to and so ideology specifically and also you know um, anti-feminism and alt right movements more broadly it's quite hard to know you know from the first instance who's who's trolling and, and then, on the other hand, who's actually serious in their threats um, that they might make towards women or people of colour or other people. Um, I think one good example of it is jokes about, about rape culture and stuff like that. You know, it's difficult to find the dividing line between someone who is making an incredibly harmful and offensive joke, as it were, about threatening rape against somebody, and someone who actually is saying these things with the intent to go forward and carry out a crime like that. And I think in terms of radicalization process and stuff like that, it is something that starts quite young. And part of the reason why I'm looking at literature is because of its role as, as something which goes beyond just books and plays and things like this that exist in academic spheres because literature... Um, you know has this cultural capital associated with it you might have never read frankenstein but you you know what it's about you know frankenstein's monster you know the character things like this are incredibly important because these artifacts have a cultural value assigned to them there are things especially meme culture is incredibly significant in taking quotes examples images and things like this well out of context and kind of and using that to justify something else or using that to make light of something else completely out of context and I think in terms of radicalization it's important that it is especially young children who are being affected by this who might be you know watching YouTube watching TV in which literary parallels are, are kind of everywhere from the Lion King onwards and watching something that's maybe PewDiePie videos or whatever, which has this kind of underhand, sexist undertones, racist undertones, and in some cases quite explicit. In five years a child watching that can progress on to these social justice warrior triggered videos, all these videos that are kind of making light of of social justice and civil rights movements, which are, you know, originate from alt-right communities. And then onwards once they start getting a bit older and start getting recommended things, um, one important figure is um, the psychologist Jordan Peterson, who is a very important figure within the incel community and has academic legitimacy through his profession as a person who puts forward these ideas and supports these ideas about, about the, the correct role of women, the correct role of men, what masculinity should be, how to kind of reinforce your own masculinity. And by the time that a child is coming around to watching these kind of things, they'll also be, you know, in school, and um, watching films and reading books, in which the protagonists, you know, display these attitudes of entitlement to women, of seeing other people as as subhuman, as, as lesser, and seeing themselves as kind of this important main character. And I think, you know, that's quite clear. in any text from, you know, when you see any quote from Holden Caulfield, Frankenstein's monster, Hamlet, there are quite clear connections that I think are there to be made between these characters and other characters from these other spheres that Ansel's like to reference, you know, of the Joker, um, Death Notes, Light Yagami, these kind of characters. And the cultural capital of these artefacts kind of Goes towards making this behaviour seem legitimate and seem acceptable. And I think that that legitimacy gives people a feeling that they can then go towards, you know, criticising feminist theory, criticising social justice warriors with information that, you know, is not academically legitimate. It's information that they have seen on a video, that they have seen On a meme online, they have these perceptions about text, they have these perceptions about other people, and they use these to kind of, as they grow older and kind of become more entrenched within, particularly the incel community, they become a way of reinforcing their own problematic beliefs about masculinity and gender roles and things like that.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. You touched on prominent figures of what is known as like the intellectual dark web, uh, like Jordan mm-hmm. Peterson, um, and these kind of people who've really rose to prominence through YouTube and, and podcasts, as well as the kind of counter, uh, what's been termed, Um, social justice warriors or like um, a kind of reaction to feminism and stuff like that. We have sort of seen how dangerous these ideas can be and what's seen as sort of simple ideas in literature and culture can be uh, rehashed into radicalization through internet channels. From the perspective of the kind of liberal wanting to stop these radicalization uh, projects, are we in a sort of I say we because kind of liberal academia. Are we in a kind of catch-22 in terms of one of the main things that these stalwarts of insuldom talk about is the right to free speech or their right to a platform in certain instances? So by us uh, talking about how these are dangerous ideas that kind of can't be allowed within uh, mainstream society, are we we playing into their narrative of the kind of mainstream media shutting down popular ideas and are we kind of pushing them to margins which would increase radicalization?
1: Yeah definitely I think that you know when we're looking at some of the texts that I'm looking at that you know are obviously very revered particularly you know within literary spheres but also within kind of western culture more widely it is an incredibly sensitive topic when you go towards criticising something that um, as a as a cultural artifact is held very close to a lot of people's hearts and and is also seen as this kind of as a as a pillar of the canon as a pillar of Western culture, Western civilization, particularly in Britain and America. And I think the texts that I'm looking at these texts they are all Nat 5, they're all higher English. And they appear on virtually every single bestseller novels of all time, the novels that you should read before you die, these bucket list novels. You know, when people come up against material that's either incredibly challenging or incredibly problematic in terms of the attitudes that it might be seen to legitimise or the way that in which it might function for a particular group, Catching the Eye has already had problems in terms of people using it as justifications for violence in the past. But I think the kind of temptation to call for the banning of these texts the restriction of these texts going back to catch on the Rag, right and it was a banned book for a very long time within you know schools across america and i think the far-right rhetoric of free speech i think the proponents of this would be you know delighted by calls for the banning of texts and the balance the banning of these online platforms and the taking down of particular uh, particularly influential accounts online you know because that would then in turn reinforce their kind of ideas about what you know liberal academia is seeking to do how it's seeking to destroy free speech and prevent people from having this freedom of thought and things like this but I think it's quite true you see like historically such acts that go towards the the banning and the limitation of texts like this just kind of go towards driving the communities that use them in a particular way further underground. And similarly, there's an important conversation to be had about deplatforming. I think in some instances, of course, deplatforming is the safest and best way forward in terms of tackling particular individuals. But I think on a whole, issues like deplatforming, in an ideal world, they shouldn't have to come about. We shouldn't have to have those kind of conversations. Um, because I think that it's much more important to treat the root cause of these attitudes and these issues. And I think that when you look towards, you know, mass ban and mass deplatforming and this kind of idea about burning books, it just doesn't, as you say, like drive these communities much further underground, where they become the victims of some of these communities, and you know, they become harder to catch. They become harder for you to dig somebody out of that hole if it's a person that you know. And I think that in this sense, English And the humanities have a really important role in this, as much of an important role as psychology, the sciences would have in tackling social groups and issues like this. And I think that English as a field is incredibly important in terms of its role in in treating these issues and in looking towards helping young people to critically engage with the material that they're presented, whether that is a text when they're doing their Nat 5 English exam or whether that is a YouTube video when they're watched it at home. And I think psychology, education and politics all have these kind of roles to play. And I do think there's kind of a long way to go in terms of questioning in English, particularly why we continue to revere and uncritically praise some of these texts, which upon close inspection and can be seen to promote misogynistic, sexually violent, racist, colonialist attitudes and why perhaps we are giving these texts to children who, in the context of exams, in the context of the school system, don't have a place in which they can kind of critically interrogate or examine these texts in a meaningful way. Of Also, of course, there's important conversations to be had about the fact that much of the texts in the kind of informal literary canon that we give to children as school and university syllabuses, comes from a very small, exclusive and privileged demographic of the same ten white men over and over again. Having only sat hires four years ago, I think that curriculums that prioritise excellence over the other important roles is not really conducive to supporting healthier, meaningful debate about these texts and discussion within classrooms that might allow children to, you know, come to terms with their own ideas, their own prejudices and their own thoughts as well as those that are kind of present within the text. So I think to come back to, to the idea about, about free speech and the banning of texts and things like that, I think that, well, it is, yeah, really tempting for a lot of people to kind of think, oh, well, if we if we ban them, then they don't exist. But these attitudes have always existed and probably will always exist unless they're kind of treated at the root cause.
0: That That's fascinating, because I think one of the... Th- Critiques of the left is this idea that we're seen to be shutting down ideas, or that we're implementing cancel culture and stuff like that. Whereas, from kind of what you said, that seems like almost the opposite. Is the solution is that you're uh, asking that actually these takes are really important. Um, And it's the failure to properly educate people on these texts that is leading to different representations of them and uh, a narrative coming forward that is seen as hegemonic without being being questioned. Um, And then I suppose within that you then have these arguments against uh, moral relativism and kind of some of these more uh, postmodern critiques. Uh, of these texts in terms of your research more specifically um can you talk about how you arrived at a critique of um texts like frankenstein hamlet and the catcher in the rye and how uh, more specifically these um fit in with uh our perceptions of themes like incels masculinity um, and kind of gender studies uh, more broadly
1: yeah um so my thesis um as it stands currently is entitled the Insel Book Club, Inseldom, Toxic Masculinity and the Literary Canon and it's an interdisciplinary project across English and gender studies which combines internet and social media based research with close reading and feminist analysis of this kind of core group of literary texts from within the canon. Um, The texts that I'm going to be looking at primarily are Hamlet from 1600, Frankenstein from 1818, and from the Eye from 1951, all of which um, you know, are very familiar um, probably to listeners as kind of important pillars of the literary canon, and in turn also from school and university syllabuses. I think in researching and writing it, my intention is primarily to start off by determining whether these texts and and others are being appropriated by the involuntary celibate community as justifications for violence, misogyny and self-destruction. To also examine the possible ways in which literature could be said to facilitate um, possible appropriation and identification with these texts. Um, And finally, to look towards what potential implications that the function of these texts within this kind of um, community or this group um, has and what the relationship it has to notions of cultural capital and social elitism. So the main reason that I wanted to pursue this topic in the first place was, um, I'd honestly become kind of fascinated during my undergraduate degree by what I saw as a pattern emerging across my um, university and also school literature assignments. Um, And you know, the almost cookie cutter protagonists that seem to crop up time and again in novels, poems and plays all the ways, from the 17th century through to even last year um, and I'm preparing to start my research in um, early last year I spent a whole summer on reddit 4chan and incels.co which is an independent incel forum site and one of the most popular ones and I kind of search continuously for mentions of classic literature through um, you know posts looking for book recommendations from other incels post-debate in which um, fictional characters are incel um, and references in um, jokes and memes that they might make to um, classical literary texts and I can build this kind of big list of posts and tallied up um, the most prevalent texts, the ones that appear time and again and the ones that um, are kind of gone into the most detail about their function and their role as incel texts. Um, so that kind of helped me settle down on my um, my big three of Frankenstein, Hamlet and Catcher, as well as um, potentially looking at others like The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Brave New World. But um, there are, you know, through looking at it, there were masses of texts from, you know, um, Serrano de Bergerac through to um, much more modern texts like Fight Club and American Psycho. Um, and I think the texts that I've selected to look at um, are quite useful in terms of the kind of historical span of the texts, um, because I think that the idea about tracing these attitudes throughout history is something which could potentially be quite important for the Incel community and looking at them. And I think that in terms of gender studies, there has been kind of, you know, quite a large focus, particularly within um, academia and um, taught gender studies. Courses and things like this. There's a perception that gender studies is women's studies, quite clearly, and that a lot of people feel. And I think this topic is quite interesting in the sense that it looks primarily at masculinity, but also in the ways that this particular form of masculinity itself has has constructed other new forms of femininity, um, and new gender roles, and new kind of ideas about the ways in which gender ought to function in the perfect um, kind of utopian society for incels and I think that within the kind of um, the kind of incel scholarship that exists currently most of the research that I've um, that I've looked at and that I've been referencing kind of looks much more towards the role of the internet and things like this and um, you know more recently popular media like film and television and kind of um, creating the the incel sphere of, of culture and of um, kind of communities. And I think that it's quite important, given the fact that literature is so prevalent clearly within these communities, I think it's important to kind of look at the way that literature might be functioning for incels. And I think that in that sense, it kind of fills quite a clear gap in terms of the the existing discourse surrounding incels.
0: What you kind of mentioned there about um, how it fits in with gender studies more broadly, within incel culture, it seems Mm -hmm. to be that they um, are taking agency away from the woman and blaming women for the societal as well as psychological problems that they may face kind of being men in the 21st century. To what extent then does it kind of mirror um feminism in terms of its in terms of its aims and ideals? Obviously the kind of the root meaning of feminism is towards equality between between men and women. Is that what incels are kind of looking for, or are incels, from your research, do you think incels are looking more towards a nostalgic view of the past, uh, where kind of men dominated women, not only in gender relations, but men had a higher status in society just by being men?
1: Yeah, to kind of start off in terms of incel theory and incel ideology that exists within their community themselves. um, it's incredibly broad and incredibly complex, um, various theories and sub-theories that they have about the ways in which they believe society works. And in terms of masculinity, you know, they have these various actors that they see to represent the various forms of masculinity down the, uh, a hierarchical scale. So you have um, gigachads, chads, brads, normies, manlets, incels, and genetic trash kind of going from the the, the top of the social pyramid all the way down to the incels um, and what they call themselves as genetic trash at the bottom. Whereas on the other hand, women are kind of almost one note in terms of the way that they see women, although it is contradictory one note. Um, So they describe women as Stacey's and Becky's to kind of get towards this prototypical view of a woman as a manipulative force as a shallow and materialistic person and of course some of their other terms that they use for women are um, femoids so female humanoids and holes which um, is you know as kind of vulgar as you might expect and that kind of attitude towards women as being both these kind of these actors that have incredible agency within the sexual marketplace but are also kind of naturally should be inferior in men it's quite interesting Um, it comes back to this one theory that they have about the way the society works which is called female hypergamy which is kind of the sexual equivalent of marrying up and it kind of states that women exclusively pursue partners in terms of the sexual marketplace who are more attractive, more popular and more wealthy. And the kind of ideas about this are supported by figures like Jordan Peterson, who, um, to quote him, violent attacks are what happens when men do not have partners. The cure for that is monogamy. So, Peterson... Although he kind of caveated this statement by saying that he does not advocate for, to quote, the arbitrary dealing out of damsels to incels. His kind of ideas about this enforced monogamy and the role that women should be playing and the kind of, the removal of sexual agency from women. A lot of incels really support this and really see this as kind of the way forward and the way to kind of combat the progress that that feminism has made within society in terms of pushing for gender equality. In this kind of theory women control the sexual marketplace so it's quite surprising to a lot of people that incels are giving women this kind of incredible degree of power and agency over their own bodies, over their own lives and also quite critically over men Um, which is you know interesting given the fact that they very frequently refer to women as inferior beings and their their kind of ideal that women's primary function should be to fulfill the sexual and emotional needs and desires of their partners but I think kind of what they're getting at is that feminism in this sense has given women ideas above their station and that's something that you know has caused seldom because no longer are women going for what they call their looks match which would be Someone that you would rate in, on an attractiveness scale as a one, they see that one should one should go together, 10 should go together. like the most stunning people in the world should be going out with the most stunning people in the world. But they don't believe that women date down in that sense. They don't believe that women will pursue relationships with anyone who is less attractive or less wealthy, less popular in terms of um, kind of society than them which of course is not true because that's not how relationships work. And they think that this idea that women are only pursuing people higher up on them than on this scale has kind of caused and them and it's robbed them of the, the chance to be with women. And it's something that must, you know, be reversed. They're looking towards um, the ideas like Peterson, that, you know, you should have this kind of mandated enforced monogamy by the government, um, by institutions, also by social pressure itself um, and kind of society as a whole more broadly they kind of believe that that might be one solution to freeing them from their plight.
0: One of the most interesting things um, from your research more specifically seems to be this cognitive dissonance that occurs but sort of within incel culture and that at every stage of their ideology is to uh, denigrate women and take agents, take, uh, sexual and societal agency away from women in all spheres, yet they see stereotypical representations of women as their saviour, as way to get out of inceldom. And there also seems to be a real contradiction in terms of ideology and that um, we spoke earlier about how it filters into um, alt-right circles and this reaction to feminism and social justice and stuff like that. Um, But within that, they are speaking about um, different state mandates and different um, ways in which equality should be achieved. Uh, I think uh, Dole called it sexual Marxism, Um, from that perspective so there really seems to be um a kind of dissonance within themselves and then uh, a kind of contradiction between their uh, political ideologies
1: i think it kind of originates from this their ideas about masculinity and you know what true masculinity should be which is something that um you know jordan peterson and his writing and and his kind of appearances on podcasts like joe rogan and stuff like that has um you know spent a lot of time looking at and I think in terms of masculinity, it comes down to the fact that a lot of the common denominator across incels is this kind of insecurity in their identity, but particularly in their masculinity. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of this rhetoric, like I said, of referring to themselves as genetic trash, as subhuman and things like that. Using racial and um, ableist slurs against themselves in some instances, and I think that it is this kind of struggle against the the modern image of the alpha male, this kind of white, blonde hair, athletic, popular, and um, guy. And and I think that they kind of in, instead of um, you know looking looking at people as individuals, they kind of the they revert back to these ideas about these actors, the Chads and Brads and stuff like this, as the archetype of, of a meathead of a job which they give these kind of stereotypical names of Chad and Brad to. Um, and I think there's also, in terms of their self-image, quite a strong undercurrent of um, white supremacist and interna- uh, internalised racist values within unsepal forums. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, praising of Caucasian features Um, fetishizing aspects of other ethnicities in particular Um, you know they highlight kind of um, tan skin um, strong bone structure and um, also incredibly fetishistic views particularly of Asian men which are derived from their kind of reference spaces in in anime and kind of idol culture in Japan and Korea places like this which is you know quite a big part of their kind of cultural reference base and their idea of like what women want and there is kind of this constant struggle between feeling that their feelings are kind of due to their physicality and their physical perceived attractiveness. You know so many um, incels spend time on these forums fantasising about and also taking part in extreme diets, uh, workouts and surgical enhancements to kind of try and attract women. And I think that that's kind of itself rooted in their kind of view that women are shallow and materialistic, you know, looking for arm candy and social capital rather than a relationship and an emotional connection. And this, in turn, I think you can probably see the way in which their ideas about masculinity reinforce their ideas about about femininity and their ideas about what feminism has done to women and how it has kind of turned women from these, from this caveman society and their idea about the way that society should work and that women should not have sexual agency. So I think that that in turn has warped their view of what an ideal girlfriend should be, what an ideal partner should be and an ideal relationship. And I think that that is important to kind of stress that their view of themselves and what they should be informs their view of what the ideal woman should be. In terms of looks and also in terms of personality and social role.
0: Mm. You sent me the ContraPoints video on Mm -hmm. incels uh, which I'll tag in the show notes um, below. It's a really interesting um, kind of overview of how incel culture developed. She really touched on something that you spoke about there and that most of the kind of Um, self-deprecation and the uh, self-loathing among incels online seems to come from um, body image issues and uh, issues about where they exist uh, in society. She made the really kind of good point about like the obsession about around jawlines is the same Mm -hmm. that she experienced as a trans woman, trying to fit uh, society's different moulds. So, would it fair to say then that the the incels frustration or the incels hatred of feminism their ideas concerning um what makes uh, what makes a man or uh, how they should fit contemporary body image um, these kind of were the ideas that have been challenged throughout feminism um for mm-hmm. for years and have been seen by um people like Mark Fisher as uh Uh, um, outcome of capitalism sort of selling a constant dissatisfaction with um, both societal value and uh, body image value. So would would you argue that incels frustration and um, kind of anger towards feminism is just justifiable in terms of the the image that they have amongst themselves about like these are things that everyone feels everyone kind of feels that they don't fit a body image and stuff like that but rather it should be a critique against capitalism and the way that we're sold a constant dissatisfaction and that's something that feminism has kind of recognized early on and and worked to challenge um, but with uh, men's rights activism and and this manosphere that you talk about, it seems to be going in the opposite direction and harming the very people who have the ability to point out the, um, the main issues within their culture and the kind of the real targets of this, which would be um, advertising, um, tech corporations and the sort of powerful institutions which are uh, profiting off of people not feeling great about themselves?
1: Yeah, um, definitely. I think it is quite important to state and is perhaps quite controversial to some people to state that, um, you know, being an incel is not a crime and I don't necessarily believe that it should be viewed as a bad thing, particularly in terms of, you know, the original definition of an incel as a person who struggles to attain a desired relationship. Um, And, you know, there are... There are still plenty of people within and so communities online that um, subscribe to this definition of themselves and are perhaps just love shy and stuff like that. I think that these, in some instances, are just people who are unable to get relationships and are kind of seeking support against this wave of, you know, Instagram, the perfect life that people live online and the perfect relationship particularly because relationships are seen as such an important milestone in a person's development and also in a person's kind of place within within culture and society you know someone can be incredibly successful and people will still continue to ask you know why are they not married why have they not had children yet what do they not have a girlfriend do they not have a boyfriend a lot of people are seeking support against this wave of instagram and particularly tinder is cited a lot by members because of its position as a dating platform that focuses solely you know, on, in a lot of instances, just a single image of a person, a single photo. So it is quite, um, you know, seen as quite shallow in that sense. And I think that it's definitely true that this combination of these kind of issues, social media platforms and stuff like that, like Instagram, that kind of promote, you should have achieved this by a certain age, you should have done this by a certain age, blah, blah, blah. I think that late stage capitalism kind of really comes into that quite clearly in terms of the way that it has kind of um, categorised the ideal masculinity and then Debbie Ging talks a lot about this and a lot about the role of late stage capitalism and coming as long building snowball um, based upon centuries of, you know, masculine supremacy and patriarchy in kind of in, in western society for for centuries and I think that that kind of role of capitalism and you know these ideas about the self-image of incels is quite there's quite a kind of clear connection there and they do look often towards um history and even ancient history and you know pseudoscience surrounding you know um, animal society and um, the relationships of wolves and wolf society these ideas about the alpha and beta in um, which you know have been disproven scientifically but these kind of ideas about the way that masculinity should work are kind of quite similar to literature in the sense that some of these ideas and perceptions of patriarchy and, and masculinity and gender roles have these kind of cultural significances. That people just will assume off the bat that they are true and won't look into them and won't seek to kind of criticize them and I think that this idea of trying to place yourself within a hierarchy really speaks to people who are you know met with this feeling of inadequacy and failure Um, you know coming off the back of like um, post-industrialization where you know a lot of people feel like they don't have a place in society feel like they have not they're not meeting these milestones I think that that it's that is an issue it is an issue for a lot of people I don't think it's fair to say you know that um um you know all these like all these people are complaining for nothing they're they're putting forward these ideas and it's um it's of course incredibly harmful and incredibly disturbing often rhetoric that is put forward on unsealed communities but I think at the at a base level you know you don't want to I, you don't want to alienate communities like this because I think that as it does speak to wider issues that feminist theory has has kind of addressed in the past and I think it, you know there's there is always this popular saying and in, in this kind of popular idea that people use against particularly men who describe themselves as anti feminists or people who don't believe in feminism, is that feminism is at its root about gender equality. It like it seems quite simple to say, but it's not about female supremacy. It's not about, you know, women taking over the sexual marketplace and and, you know, um kind of running the world and, and this kind of misandry and all these kind of ideas. I, I think that it's important particularly for young people to understand in terms of education and in terms of the way that they're taught about things like feminism and in terms of the way that they're taught about other people's rights and other people's you know civil liberties that that ideas about gender equality are about just that they're about gender equality it is about kind of trying to try to remove these feelings of inadequacy and failure that plenty of women feel incredibly inadequate and like they are not meeting milestones in the same way that plenty of men do. And I think that it's it's not really any coincidence that it's particularly men on these platforms because of the way that patriarchy has kind of conditioned men to think that they are entitled towards relationships, that they are entitled towards women's bodies, towards women's time even. I think that this idea about masculinity threat, which is something that um, Maria Scaptura and Caitlin Boyle talk about a lot, is that, you know, like, it is a threat to masculinity that that is kind of or, or a threat to to perceived ideas about what masculinity should be in this incredibly binary system that is what is at the root of this.
0: Two of the kind of main things that you spoke about there um, were the kind of values that we place on society as well as these concepts that we have around relationships and the way that the relationships uh, should work and and kind of different milestones that you should be at in your life. This has kind of came to a head in your research uh, through the concept of the state-mandated girlfriend, um, which is something you um, presented on at the Postgraduate Gender Research Network of Scotland. Can you talk about the idea of the state-mandated girlfriend, where it came from and what it represents about some of the things that we might be missing or some of the gaps within our understanding of contemporary gender norms.
1: So the state mandated girlfriend is kind of a term that originated from um, memes and, you know, the only real definitions of it that you can find, to be honest, are on sites like Urban Dictionary and things like that. Um, And I think that um, this kind of idea of it comes back really to the idea of female hypergamy um, that was popularized by Peterson and this idea that enforced monogamy as a solution in a sense to and seldom and particularly to male misogynist violence which is rooted in the fact that they're unable to get relationships so the state mandated girlfriend originated as a meme about kind of the ideal the, the ideal girlfriend meme and there are, you know, masses of these, if you are to look it up, that will talk about ideal girlfriends based on people's personal preferences. So it's something that people will make individually and quite specific to them that will relate, you know, to things like anime, to gamer culture, to all these all these different kind of subgenres within online fandom communities. And of course, fandom communities online particularly on 4chan, are incredibly um, closely linked to incels online because of this kind of idea about geek culture and the incels are the kind of image of the prototypical incel as like a wee hermit geek that sits in the dark on a, on a PC all day. Um, and the state-mandated girlfriend, in this sense, is plays into this vein, um, much like the trope of the manic pixie-dream girl, which is seen a lot in cinema of this kind of ethereal figure of a girl who has absolutely no personality. She's completely 2D, completely flat and has no backstory, no motivations other than trying to win over and get with male protagonists. And the state-mandated girlfriend really plays into this as kind of an ideal girlfriend that um, you know won't talk back, and is eternally devoted to her partner, her boyfriend, and is, in this sense, image of like a real-life sex doll or an AI girlfriend, um, kind of the like of which that people have seen in films, particularly in the last decade, but also previously in um, Ex Machina, Spike Jones's Heart, and the Blade Runner series. You know, these are very popular tropes for people. And in my work, I tried to link this back towards literature and see whether there were any kind of literary origins or any kind of um, allusions to ideas much like the state mandated girlfriend in literature and you know kind of the most popular one within um, society is the Bride of Frankenstein and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein who in in the text is never named and is never actually you know made unlike in you know the popular films and the popular images of the Bride of Frankenstein she's just kind of an amalgamation of body parts that is destroyed by Victor Frankenstein in the text. But she kind of originates from Frankenstein's monster's desire to have a partner, to have someone who can share and his these similar feelings of, of um, isolation and these feelings of inadequacy and stuff like that. Because the monster spends, you know, quite a lot of his time in the text talking about the fact that he's unable to have relationships, he's unable... To even have platonic relationships to speak to other people because he is a creature composed of body parts and reanimated and is therefore incredibly unwelcome in general society. So he says um, in the text when he confronts uh, Victor Frankenstein about his kind of um, situation he says to him What I ask of you is responsible and moderate. I demand a creature of another sex but as hideous as myself. And I think that kind of quote, in, in the sense that he is, you know, demanding him to create a, a mandated girlfriend, he's demanding a, a, a partner who is like him, will not challenge anything that he says, go along with his ideas about the world and stuff like that, and will essentially just act as, as a companion, not as a, an actual relationship, really, because he does speak in the text, you know, about... The idea that he, you know, would dictate um, her kind of her sleeping routines, her eating routines. These are the kind of fantasies that he has about a girlfriend if he was to get one. And I think it does also kind of echo Jordan Peterson's threat of these violent attacks that might happen when men don't have partners, as he says. um Because the creature in the novel says, there is love in me, the likes of which you've never seen. There is rage in me, the likes of which should never escape. If I am not satisfied in the one, I will indulge the other. And I think that, you know, that quote is, when read in the kind of context of inseldom, it's quite kind of striking as, you know, a clear threat of violence. And I think it's quite interesting that the novel itself, you know, is written by a woman and has kind of historically, particularly within literary criticism, been viewed actually as a, as a birth myth as a novel which is about women and women's relationships with women and their children, even though the kind of two primary characters in the text are men. And I think that that is quite interesting in the way that the text functions because Incels Online particularly don't pick up on that idea about the birth myth. They don't even really pick up on the idea that Mary Shelley is a woman besides a few posts which kind of were... Surprised and said, "You know, oh, I'm shocked that such um, that this could have come from a void, or a femoid, which is basically an incredibly derogatory term for women." So I think it's interesting that this kind of link between incels and in the sense of the state-mandated girlfriend, the monster. I think the link is that women in both situations have no agency and have no consent. They're not the Stacys and Becky's of the kind of encelosphere that are able to, you know, have sexual agency to dictate their place in the sexual marketplace and dictate importantly who their partner will be and what their partner's role will be in the relationship. And I think importantly also shows in, in the text an entitlement towards women, towards women's bodies with no questions asked. He's asking him quite explicitly to make make a woman for me. Don't create her so that she can live her own life and develop education in the way that the monster was able to do to kind of fulfil his own personal needs and desires. So I think that if we look at the state-mandated girlfriend in that sense, in a a literary sense, um, I think it does kind of underline this kind of ideal view of women who have no agency and no control. And I think that the idea that that is a solution to, you know, the cruel curse of feminism and ridden men of their, their ability to have relationships with whomever they please is kind of important. I think it's quite clear that the way in which that link could be made.
0: Yeah, the trajectory that you display from a, a seminal text like Frankenstein, what that says about the um, gendered relations that we have within society, especially society at that time when it was far more um, radical to write such a text like this. Um, And in terms of it being... from a female author, Mary Shelley, as well, it seems to be, from a critical theory perspective anyway, almost a satire on the ways in which women were represented in that society and have continued to be represented despite uh, major advances, both uh, societally and politically. Within that, the fact that incels take this literally to an extent and see... um, the creation of Frankenstein's Bride as uh, a justification for a, a very toxic a- idea like the state mandated girlfriend. That points to me to be a, a failing in education and a failing in critical theory or in terms of uh, teaching people about English literature and teaching people about the different arguments and the different nuanced debates that exist within a text just to end on 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 that and your kind of concurrent theme of um, how education can be used, how do you think? I suppose we within the kind of literary canon and also as liberal academics and like feminists can effectively challenge some of the more toxic ideas associated associated with inceldom, but then also create this kind of space where. We still allow for a high level of debate, and without it being dragged towards extremism, uh, kind of on either side.
1: I do think it's definitely true that, particularly within the education system, um, you know, I think it's quite damaging. The sense, um, from a personal perspective, it's quite damaging. This idea that that school and literature particularly and you know other art subjects if you and, and humanity subjects if you look at you know history, modern studies um, and languages even. Um, I think that it's quite damaging the narrative that's sometimes pushed within schools and also at much higher levels in higher education and academia. Um, the idea that the humanities somehow have less value than STEM subjects and um, particularly for children um, you know being pushed towards academic subjects and by academic subjects they really meant the sciences and maths in society and I think that's an incredibly damaging thing to reinforce in young children because I think that you know just as we're in a global pandemic and kind of um, international political turmoil, recession, and these kind of things. It's incredibly important to have political scientists. It's incredibly important to have scientists and medics and engineers and physicians and these kind of things. In the same sense, a subject like English is equally important. And I don't think that that stress is made enough within education and, you know, in schools and even at uh, university level. I don't think that that is stressed enough. And I think that the role that humanities and particularly English in the sense of um, close reading skills I don't think that that role is kind of discussed enough and and I don't think that children are presented with the kind of possibilities that come out of English because you know um, there's this idea that English is a pointless degree that that is something that kind of the the exam factory system has kind of um, facilitated in the sense that children are you know presented with English and their only experience with English literature and English language as a kind of subject is this idea that English is it's it's about memorizing essays you're given the quotes you're given the the topic sentences and you're given the context and the analysis and then you're told to link it back to the question and memorize it and repeat it in the exam and that is not what english is about it's not what english should be about and i think that you know the critical thinking skills that hu- that the humanities can offer to children to young people and you know to adults as well i think that that is the key particularly in in looking towards reducing some of the bigotry some of the harmful attitudes that can be spread online and not to say deplatform these people take these people down although in many cases they Rightly, should be taken down, and perhaps from a moral standpoint, do not deserve a platform online, but I think that giving children the critical thinking skills to actually look at a source to look at a YouTube video is kind of like it's it's important that people should have these skills and have the ability to look at things and decide for themselves whether or not something is legitimate whether or not something is a place from which you can you can trust a source and I think that that's something that the kind of exam system does not allow for and I think it's incredibly sad that that's the case and I think it's also important to look with children and examine the kind of role of literature and cultural capital. I think that it's incredibly important to look at the ways in which literature can constitute a means of identity formation for people particularly young people who are incredibly you know impressionistic and I'm sure you and many listeners will be aware of the fact that at some time or another you you know based your own personality and your own identity on a book character or a film character on a pop star or whatever like literature is no different and I think that kind of it's important to note that you know many of the incels probably haven't read these texts and they don't interrogate them fully and they take them quite literally and I think that that's often what we are kind of trained to do in school I think we're trained to kind of just look at it and say here's the spark notes copy paste and I will just write that out in the exam and then I'll move on and I'm not really interested in what this character has to say or for those who are interested in what a character has to say and you know in terms of a character like Frankenstein's monster look at his kind of entitlement to women and think wow yeah that's how I feel like I said before I don't think that it's you know necessarily a crime to find yourself finding parallels with these characters and find yourself you know identifying with these characters because there is a reason why these texts are so popular there's a reason why these texts are so interesting and fascinating to read and I'm not, I would be the last person to come out and say that I don't think that Hamlet, Catcher and the Ryan Frankenstein should be taught in schools because I think they're incredibly important texts for young people. I think they have incredibly important things to tell people and to offer young people about, not about telling people the way that they should think, but offering young people to an opportunity to kind of develop their own way of thinking about a text and their own opinions about a text and kind of to look at the cultural value, look at their own perceptions, look at their own kind of implicit biases that they might have and then take these ideas about implicit biases, take these ideas about critically examining sources and put these in place in the real world, put these in place in conversations. I think that that's probably the most important takeaway that you could look at in terms of, you know, how to combat these attitudes within society. Um, is the kind of takeaway that I would offer.
0: Yeah, I mean, thank you so much. That's that's fascinating. <laughs> I think that's a really positive note to kind of end on, is that we should really treat these issues at the root source uh, through education and schools, through using these kind of seminal texts uh, in English and in humanities more broadly to really engage people with critical theory and critical thinking about texts and and the nuanced relationship between texts. Um, So Claire, I'll end it there. Thank you so much for uh, bringing to light some of these really important yet sometimes overlooked ideas and kind of intersections between gender studies, English and history more broadly. Um, So yeah, thanks so much, Claire.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I just want to say, of course, to anybody who's particularly interested in this, please um, feel free to get in contact and also feel free to um, to watch the ContraPoints videos on incels if you would like uh, an incredibly in-depth and humorous kind of introduction to incel culture and society. Um, thank you so much, Paul, for having me.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the Scottish Centre for Global History at the University of Dundee. You can find a full list of our blogs, podcasts and research workshops at globalhistory.org.uk. If you would like to contribute to this site, email us at scgh at dundee.ac.uk or get us on Twitter at uodscgh. Thanks.